when we think of the book of Nehemiah, one of the first things we ought to think about is a wall. This is uh, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, it's wall building time. And not just for the sake of Jerusalem does Nehemiah want to build this wall. It's for his people. It's for his God. And it helps us to be able to learn from what happened here uh, at this time so that we as Christians can understand what it truly means to build. If you remember, uh, you have the kingdom of Israel united. It's divided at a certain point. We know that those kings went on a certain way. The first kingdom to be taken was northern Israel into Assyria. And then Judah, kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem was overtaken by the Babylonian Empire. But after that captivity, there was certainly a remnant that was allowed to come back to Jerusalem. And while we learn in Ezra about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, in Nehemiah we learn about the building of the wall around Jerusalem. Now, the picture that I found up here is uh, what seems to be a little bit left of that wall. I don't know really for sure. Anything I think that people say in Jerusalem, this is where Jesus sat, or this is where Paul preached, or something like that. Uh, I think we need to take that with a grain of salt because it's been quite a while since those things occurred. I think uh, it could be very easy for people to just set a plaque somewhere and say that this is where this happened. But uh, if this is part of Nehemiah's wall, you can see that uh, by God's grace, by His mercy, there's some of it left there that we can look at. It seems that this wall went up about... 300 years, 300 to 400 years before Jesus was born. And so you're talking about an event that, from our standpoint, happened about 2,400 years ago. And I've titled this lesson tonight, The Grace of God in Building. And hopefully I don't really have to explain why I've titled it that way. Maybe you can pick it up throughout the course of our study tonight. But we need to know, as Christians, what it means to do the kind of work that Nehemiah encouraged Israel into. And so as we go into this study, I'd like us to start reading in Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth years, I was in Shushan, the citadel. Then Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words <clears throat> that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. 
we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. There are so many wonderful things going on, even just in this first chapter, to appreciate about Nehemiah. His attitude, his faith in God, his knowledge of God. And as we look at this, first of all, we need to recognize that Nehemiah had a great love for God and his people. We're going to talk about three basic things about Nehemiah and then talk about the great victory that they enjoyed. First of all, Nehemiah had a great love for God. We're going to talk also as well how Nehemiah planned the work to do and that he focused on that work and didn't allow negativity to get in his way. We note in verses 3 and 4 that Nehemiah's reaction to this terrible news is very apt. It's, it's fitting concerning this. Walls were very serious uh, security measures in those days. If you didn't have a wall around your town or your city, it was open at any given time to whatever marauding band would come through and destroy everything or take what they want. And so walls were a method of security. Gates were a way of keeping out people that you didn't want to be there. But Nehemiah wept and mourned over that. I want to ask, what do we weep over? What causes us grief in our daily lives? We note in Matthew 5 and verse 4 that Jesus says, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the context of that passage, we need to remember that Christians, kingdom citizens, primarily mourn over sin. Whether it's their sin, or someone else's sin, or the sin of a group in general, sin should cause us grief. Unfortunately, we often revel in sin, and we need to be careful that we are weeping over the right things. And even so, we may see God's work not doing very well. We may see failures happen. And I'm not trying to say that we let those things pull us down to where we don't even work. I think we're going to deal with that in just a minute. But are we simply concerned? Are we at least concerned about the work of God that's going on? Romans 12.15, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Do you rejoice over uh, studies that are going on that seem to be going well? Are you weeping when faithful Christians leave the Lord and stray from Him? Nehemiah was weeping and mourning because he cared about God and he cared about his people. Prayer, of course, is a huge focus 
in the New Testament. Prayer is absolutely needed in our whole thinking because we see the Christians doing that just about everywhere we turn. In Acts 9.11, we see that uh, Ananias, we're told, is praying for Saul. We see that Saul is told to go to a street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. Excuse me. Got that mixed up there. Ananias is told that Saul is praying. So Saul spent that time. You think about the time that Saul spent while he was blind. And his whole world had been shattered. His whole viewpoint about what was right and wrong had been completely switched around. And he had to reevaluate everything. And so he was spending time in prayer. In Acts 10 and verse 2, Cornelius it said about him that he gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Now we know that doesn't mean that every single minute, literally, Cornelius was praying. What that points to is that he had a plan. He literally had a prayer life. And we use that term. That term needs to mean something. If we're going to say that I have a prayer life, then it needs to mean that we have a routine about our prayers. There is a set time that we have set aside to go to God. And not just before meals. Not just at any time that's convenient. And of course, I include myself in that need as well. In Acts 12, and verse 12, Peter comes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, where many were gathered together praying. Part of the reason Peter was loosed and freed in that passage I believe personally is because that group of Christians were praying for him. So are we praying, brothers and sisters? Are we having an interest in these things? God wants us to pray. And we need to pray for the spiritual health of ourselves as individuals and the health of this congregation, just as Nehemiah prayed for himself and for his people. You consider what is being said here. In verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you. He doesn't try to keep himself away and in pride kind of push himself above. All these people have been against you, but I've been faithful to you, Lord. Sometimes that may be the case with us. But we need to remember that we may also be part of the problem. And so we need to understand that prayer is absolutely needed. Are we praying for our health and for the health of our congregation. We need to be. And may I humbly say that we need to be careful. I know I say this when uh, tomorrow there's going to be a lot of, of appreciation for the birth time of our country and all those things. We need to be careful that we're not praying more for our country and for our government than we are for our congregation that we're a part of. That's a serious issue because... We can't expect God to rain down blessings on us and make everything okay if we're not making the time to reach out to Him on these bases. And same thing for the government. Same thing. We can't expect God to bless us and to bring things into good things if we don't pray for everybody and everything. We need to include our fellow Christians in that. The wonderful thing that I think we need to keep in mind here is what we see in verse 11. Nehemiah trusted in God's grace. When he says, grant him mercy, he's referring to himself. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
he's recognizing and he's praying and he's preparing for the hope that he's going to be able to talk to the king about this because this issue has disturbed him. And Nehemiah knew that he couldn't see or change the future, but he knew that God could. He knew that he needed to trust in Him. And we, brothers and sisters, must put our trust in God and not in our own efforts or merit. A lot of people have the wrong idea about grace. And we know that in this day and time. We see grace plastered about everywhere as if it excuses everything automatically. And there's no action called upon by those who are asking God for His grace. But the fact remains is that grace, ultimately, in terms of God's mercy, it means doing things His way. Working as hard as we can and leaving the increase in His hands. How does grace work? Well, it's not a license to sin, but we need to recognize that grace is an awesome, effective power. All throughout the Bible, we need to understand that grace enables us to do the work of God. So if we want to try and work, if we were there with Nehemiah, and we want to go and work on this wall and get this wall started, guess what? It's not going to happen unless we want God's grace. We want this congregation to grow. We want everything to work out in a better way. We want more people to be here, maybe. We better be seeking God's mercy and His grace because that's the only way it's ever going to happen. God's grace enables us. Uh, Noah, in Genesis 6-8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know, if he had never had the, the grace of God in his life, he never would have gotten the command to build the ark. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and therefore the Lord warned him about the flood to come. In John 1, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If we didn't have the grace of God, Jesus would never have come. And we would not have salvation. It would be the same as it was before. All the, and, and all the different mentions of grace within the book of Acts. Do a word search on grace in the book of Acts sometime. Acts 4.33, great grace was upon them all. In Acts 11, Barnabas is at Antioch and he came and saw the grace of God. What did that mean? It wasn't necessarily that he saw the miracles happening. It certainly was part of the grace of God. And that certainly was probably going on. But the context of the verse makes us understand that he's talking about the work of God, the spreading of the gospel. Same thing in Acts 13.43. They're in Antioch in Pisidia. And uh, Paul and Barnabas persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And then Acts 14.26. From there they sailed to Antioch, going back there to where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Brothers and sisters, if we do not understand grace, we do not understand our mission. If we don't understand what grace is, then there's no way that we're going to be able to properly do the work of God. You know why? Because God has to be working. How does God work? He works in His grace. In His mercy. It is not just a throwaway word used by the apostles in their letters. You know, all the letters, you read them. What, how do they start? Typically they start, grace and peace be with you. That is not an empty statement. That's not just, hi, how are you? That is an imploring cry to say, I want grace to be among you so that you may grow in grace. 
the effective power of God. His mercy is the only way that we have or do anything. You think about that? Can we all stop and think about this for just this moment? The fact that we are here. The fact that we are present. The fact that we are breathing. The fact that we are together is only by the grace of God. Yes, we all got here in various ways today, right? Yes, we all dressed up in many ways. Yes, we all took the effort and the time to come here. But it's all within the mercy of God. And primarily, the grace of God is used in the New Testament in relationship to the spreading of the Gospel and in the work of God within Christians' lives. It seems as if Nehemiah understood some aspect of grace. We need to understand grace as well. And through that, we'll have a proper love for God. Let me go ahead and turn on this light. Maybe it's a little dark back here. The next thing we need to recognize is that Nehemiah planned for the work to be done. Planning is so incredibly important. And I want us to note in chapter 2 and verse 1, look at what's going on. Uh, there's an, a long span of time where Nehemiah seems to be consistently praying this prayer. And it almost seems like he gets to the point where he's about ready to give up. And maybe he's pretty sad about the fact that just nothing has happened. Maybe like we talked about this morning, he feels like God just hasn't answered his prayer yet. Look in chapter 2 and verse 1. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city... The place of my father's tombs lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now we recognize as well that Nehemiah takes this moment to pray. I don't think that was a very long prayer. And that should encourage us to know that in times in our life when we need to reach out to God, we don't need to have tons and tons of time. We simply ask God for strength and we move on. Right? He prayed. He understood. This is only going to happen if the Lord is making it happen. Now, the king, of course, prepares him for this journey. He says, okay, you go ahead and do this. Which uh, shows a lot of interesting things about Artaxerxes. But we see in verse 11, look at what Nehemiah does. Verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others 
who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work number of really great things that we can understand here. First of all, we need to see things as they really are. That's what Nehemiah is trying to do at this point. He's wanting to see, and what is the extent of the damage? You know, I, I think most of us, if we were to suffer, uh, Lord forbid, a house fire or something to that effect, and we came back and tried to rebuild it, we'd need to overlook. We'd get, need to get uh, some sort of person to come in and look at everything and see what we need to do to get the house up to code and rebuilding it and all that sort of thing, we're going to have to do that. But you know what? Nehemiah did this without alerting anybody to what he was doing. And I think that shows a lot of great leadership. Jerusalem was lying in waste. It was destroyed. And this really was meant to cause concern. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5, through we see that the Corinthian brethren are not grieving over someone who is among them who is against God. If you remember, this man had his father's wife. This was a detestable thing. Paul says the Gentiles even know this is wrong. And he says, you're not grieved about this, but you're rather puffed up. Paul says they ought to be mourning about this. And too many churches certainly are puffed up when they should be ashamed. When was the last time that we really contemplated the state of our group of believers? When was the last time that we really looked at everything? Uh, we have the uh, balance sheets and everything uh, publicly available. So uh, if you're not looking at those and having some measure of interest in the future of this congregation, maybe there's something wrong there. Uh, certainly, there were a lot of people that could have gone out and surveyed the damage and seen what was wrong and try to work to rebuild it, but they didn't. It took Nehemiah going and looking at these things. And he didn't come in and just say, alright, I'm here, I'm here to save Jerusalem, I'm here to do this, I'm here to do that. He did it rather clandestinely, didn't he? He didn't call a whole lot of attention to himself. And so, maybe there's something here for us to recognize that we need to know, every single one of us need to understand, what is the future of our group together? What is the vision of where we're going? You know, when we don't plan, we're planning to fail. When we don't have an idea about where we're going, we're going to fail. You know, there are corporations out there that have upwards of 25, 50, 75. I've heard of even corporations out there that have 100-year business plans. And they have this concept, this is where we're going to be at this time, this is how much money we're going to be making, this is how much we're going to be producing... Now, if people in the world can plan to that degree, why can't God's people simply have an idea or a vision of where we're going to go instead of just spinning our wheels? Note the willingness almost immediately of the people that Nehemiah talks to. Certainly the leaders that he talks to. He says, let's build a wall. And what's their return? Let us rise up and build. And they didn't just say that. They didn't just, uh, you know, grandstand and then not do anything. They backed up their words. 
They said, yes, this is what we need to do. You're absolutely right. And they enthusiastically moved forward with this work. They set their hands to this good work. Many Christians want to be involved with the work. And I think many Christians, they have a desire to do something, to contribute something to the work of the congregation. But maybe because of poor leadership, their zeal and their effort becomes wasted. And these Christians grow weak and maybe they stray away. Brothers and sisters, I know that we don't have elders, but can we not at least have some measure of leadership to say, we've got to put our people to work. We've got to find things for everybody to do. We sing that song, there's room in the kingdom. Right? There's a place. And so we need to think about, do we have a plan? Do we have a vision for where God wants us to be? That's number one, right? We're not concerned about where the world wants us to be. And we're not concerned about where necessarily we want this church to be. We're concerned about what God wants. And we need to have a vision and a plan to accomplish that. Poor leadership is going to destroy any possibility of profitable work. And we need to keep that in mind. We need to plan for the work and plan it in the way that we see, you know, the great things we see in Nehemiah here. Let's notice in chapter 2 and verse 19. Third thing we want to notice is that Nehemiah focused on the mission. He didn't focus on negativity. Verse 19. But when Samballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but it really encourages me to see Nehemiah just steadfastly saying, you know, look, you do whatever you want to. You, you make fun of us, you, you mock us, whatever. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. That strength is what we need. And we need to recognize that many times enemies will seek to stifle the work. Let's kind of briefly go through a few things. In chapter 4, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem begin to mock the Jews' efforts and go after them. And uh, actually, it, they conspire to attack them in the latter part of that chapter. In verses uh, 8 through 15. Let's actually look at, uh, look at chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. But it so happened when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? In verses 8 through 15, look at verse 8. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. There's prayer again, right? That is a, almost a constant in this book. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. 
So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. You know, there are times when people will just be blowing smoke, right? And people will make threats, but it just turns out to be a whole lot of hot air. That's really what seems to have happened at this point. Their dedication continues on. Later on, after that doesn't seem to be working, we find they try to uh, cut a deal. Right? Uh, Nehemiah 6 and verse 1, Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of their enemies, our enemies, excuse me, heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. This is a huge point that we need to keep in mind. The world is going to want to pull us into compromise. We know that personally, compromise can be a very good thing. But when people are asking us not to work for God, when people are telling us that we don't have to be the, as strong as, as we are, when people are telling us that it's useless to, to keep doing this and to make some sort of deal, we're falling into a terrible, terrible trap if we go along with that. Nehemiah did not compromise. He did not make a deal with these people. And that's important for us to remember. We need to remember who our enemies are even today. These men also accuse the Jews of rebellion. They uh, go and send a, a letter. And they're essentially accusing that they're building up themselves as a force. Look at verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in their own heart, for they all were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Faithful Christians are going to be used. They're going to be spoken against. And we need to remember that God can strengthen our hands. God can give us the strength that we need. Also, we understand they tried to entrap Nehemiah. And that was not successful as well. Uh, these guys, they seem to be uh, pretty bad at their jobs. But what it seems to be as well is that God is making it such that these people can continue in this job, continue in this work, unhindered. And so God makes it so that these men, they really don't uh, amount to much in the ultimate scheme of things. We need to remember though, that our faith today might not quite be as strong. We're very blessed because we don't have anybody coming around here and saying, you people need to stop this. You know, you need to shut down these services that you're doing. 
we talk about you know maybe the fear of somebody coming in, holding people at gunpoint, things like that. We need to remember that our God is strong. And we also need to remember that when congregations work to fulfill their mission, Satan is going to do everything possible to disrupt this work and to hold it back. You look at the church in Corinth, all the different problems that they had to deal with. It was Satan trying to hold back their work together. Small things will distract us from our mission. Paul warns in 2 Timothy 2.16 to shun profane and idle babblings for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth saying that the resurrection has already passed and they overthrow the faith of some. Do Christians have enemies today? You better believe it. And unfortunately, our enemies will be in our own families who try to encourage us and sway us in particular ways that are away from God. But you know, Satan doesn't care which direction we go as long as that direction is away from God. He's going to throw many different things at us. You think about in John 4, we're told that Jesus Himself did not baptize but His disciples. Isn't that awesome wisdom? The fact that Jesus says, I'm not going to baptize people. Because that would have distracted from the mission. We know in Corinth that that was distracting from the mission. That some were saying they were of Paul and others that they were of Apollos. It was distracting from the mission. Paul says it's not about that. It's about Christ. So we need to remember this. Our own brethren, unfortunately, can indeed distract us from the mission. Let's go back to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 1. There was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us eat grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and our vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I recall, excuse me, I called a great assembly against them and said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what are you do, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please, let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this purpose. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and even and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. 
in this passage, we recognize that there were some of these Jews who were cheating each other financially out of their own livelihood, it seems. And we need to keep in mind that such a thing can certainly happen today. Christians can get wrapped up in squabbles amongst each other and maybe even end up cheating fellow Christians. And what this really boils down to is that some Christians just don't understand the mission of the kingdom. When you see Christians wrapped up in suits with each other, the Bible clearly warns about that. When you see Christian couples thinking that divorce is going to solve all of their problems, they're cheating each other. When they're not trying to rebuild, right? When they're not trying to reconcile at all. I recognize that sometimes those measures might need to be taken. But we ought to be willing to work things out with each other. In Luke 12 and verse 13, this person from the crowd comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? I've heard stories of people leaving churches because the elders didn't work out everything for them necessarily. We've got to be willing to work out things for ourselves as best we can. And we need to do everything we can to not let issues like that distract from our work together in the kingdom. Very serious question. Are we builders or are we detractors? Are we helping to build up the congregation? Or are we squabbling amongst each other? Nehemiah was focused on the mission. He wasn't focused on negativity. He was, if, if other people were going to do something bad, he was going to let them do that. He would also reprove the brethren that were doing wrong among him. And that's a very important thing for us to remember when we think about church discipline and issues such as that. We need to be willing to correct our brethren. We need to be willing to have an interest in them so that we can work together. That is our mission, to glorify God. And we know in the end that God's grace brought victory. In uh, Go back to chapter 4. We'll read a few verses here. We need to remember that good brethren want to work. You know, we, there are Christians out there who are ready and willing and waiting to work. And as a congregation, we have to make the decision right now that we're going to be leaders, every single one of us. Leaders in the sense that we will encourage the work and not discourage it. The Jews, we know, were tempted to lose their nerve and to quit. You know, we see, actually we read this just a few minutes ago in chapter 4 and verse 10, they're talking about, we can't really do this, this is really hard. Look in verse 14. I looked and arose, said to the nobles, do not be afraid of them, remember the Lord great and awesome, fight for your brethren. I don't think I need to read that verbatim again. But we need to notice something as well. The result was so incredible. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elui, Elul, excuse me, in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. I think that last statement should really open our eyes to the truth 
about our work together. Because our work together as a congregation is not just what we do. It's what God is doing through us. And there can be times, there, there will be times, if we're faithful and if we continue to work, we will be able to appreciate times where the world will understand those things to some degree. You know what the difference between good work and great work is? Great work is when everyone is involved. Everyone puts in their time and effort that's needed to make this congregation what it ought to be. What God wants it to be. Why did they work so well together? Remember in chapter 4 and verse 6, the people had a mind to work. They had a mind to work. They had the thought that this is what we're going to do. This is what God commands. They did not expect the work to be done for them. They did not expect Nehemiah to be the one that was working, that was just going to take care of all this. They all pitched in and worked together on it. And brothers and sisters, we are soldiers for the cause of Christ. I want to ask you, what sense does it make for us to never fight? What sense does it make for us to only send one soldier onto the battlefield? What sense does it make for us to expect the building and services to be here for us, but for us to seldom, if ever, be there for the work? Turn to Titus chapter 2. I want to finish up with this today. This has been just a brief lesson on the work of Nehemiah. And there's so much more we could pull from that book, but I recognize we're coming off of a couple of sermon series, and I didn't want to throw another sermon series on you. But in Titus 2 and verse 1, think about the relationship between this passage and what we've read and studied about tonight. Titus 2 and verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things, showing yourself to be a, do- a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." in all things. If we want good workers within our congregation, if we want to be good workers, we need to remember that that comes from a learned maturity. It doesn't come overnight, but it comes from a mature mindset to say, I may have a million things going on in my life, but there ought to be some of them that I can sacrifice and give up for the work of God. And secondly, from a servant mentality. I'm going to do everything I can, no matter what, for my God. May we work together and understand the grace of God in our work for Him. For when we work, He is working. When we do and do the right thing, He is doing. We need to remember that. Will you bow with me? 
Our holy God, we are so thankful for this time together. We are thankful for servants like Nehemiah. We're thankful for his great example of faith and dedication to you. We're thankful for the victory that you had for your people in those times. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us some same amount of that victory. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to remember that if we're faithful to you, regardless of what happens here, that we can be victors. We can be overcomers. But Lord, help us as a congregation to be stronger and stronger, to trust in You, to know that no matter what outside pressure says, what other people do, we can be faithful to You and hold to You, Father. Thank You so much for Your Word that You've preserved for us. May we glorify You in our lives. Please forgive us of our sins as we repent of them. Keep us safe. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So where are you in light of everything we've talked about? Are you a worker? Are you building? Certainly, we need to build ourselves up before we can build others up, right? We can't very well encourage someone to become a Christian if we're not a Christian. And we can't very well encourage someone to be working when we ourselves are not working. So if you need to change tonight, the Gospel call is open to you. Will you come while we stand and sing?